Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. And tonight we... Oh, yes. (laughs) Tonight we've got a very, very special guest, musician, actor, and just all-around legend, Lee Ving. Lee, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. Oh, heck, it's my pleasure, brothers. Absolutely. Now, Tommy has told me a lot about you. You know, you have history with his family, and some of the stories he's told me are incredible, and I want to get into all of that as well as uh, your very storied career as well. So why don't we just start out by talking about where you grew up? Philadelphia. Oh, yes. Same. Now, did you, grow, was, up, did you grow up in the city? Yes. Oh, where at? I was, I was born in Germantown Hospital. Okay. And uh, at that time, I think we lived on Allegheny Avenue. Just uh, yes. a, few, a few blocks up the street from K&A. Or Kensington and Allegheny. (laughs) Was Kensington and Allegheny the uh, crazy place back then that it is now? That has always been. Uh, (laughs) Some things never change. Never change. I used to spend uh, uh, too much time down there, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Yes. So tell us a little bit about uh, growing up in Philly. What were you doing? What were your interests? Well, shucks. Uh, we We moved to Roslyn. And then I went to St. Luke's in Glenside for my first couple of years of school. Mm-hmm. Then, then St. John of the Cross in Roslyn for the rest of my elementary education. Then I went to Huntington Junior High School in the public school system mm-hmm. right there in, in Abington Township. Finished high school and went to uh, Villanova after that, a, a good a good basketball school. <laughs> oh yeah. So where, where did you meet Tommy's dad? How did you meet him? Um, we were in high school together. We okay. were, we may, may have also been in grade school together. He may have gone to, I believe he did go to St. John of the cross. He did, did go he to St. He did go to St. John of the cross. Yeah. Him, so my, so just to give you some type of context, yes. Lee, Lee knew both uh, my father and my uncle. So he's like, he calls my father, Tommy and my uncle uh, Chucky. So the yeah. Tommy and Chucky were the Doherty boys. And then they had a younger sister named Patty. Um, so uh, my understanding, my, the way my, my dad used to talk about it was the, the big thing to do growing up in that area was, what was the name of the swim club that you guys all went to? Uh, uh, Sunny Willow. Sunny Willow Swimming Club. Sounds like a, a nudist colony. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the big thing, and this is what blew me away. First, I think one of the first times I spoke to you, you are a phenomenal swimmer. It's, it, had, it was perfect for a swimming team, and I was a springboard diver. Yeah. So I became the diver for that swim club. And then I went, I dove all through Abington High School. I dove every year, was on the swimming team. I did really well. I would win lots of meets, lots of competitions. I had difficult dives, inward one and a halfs off the one meter board, full twisting one and a halfs, two and a half somersaults, that sort of thing. And, uh, and it, it was very cool. Then when I went to Villanova, I leaned on that a bit too, because they did have a swimming team. And they were interested in it for for that reason, and uh, and all of that stuff. Your dad and family, uh, Chucky, Tommy, 
Patty. Is that, Patty was, that was the youngest one. Yeah, Patricia. Uh, and then uh, the father and mother lived. Uh, the, the people that built the housing development we lived in. One of their names was was Tanner. Okay. So they named the road that Tommy bought his house. Tommy's father bought the house on. They named that Banner Road. Yeah. So it would remind people of him. Yeah. And then <laughs> the the other guy that built the the housing development, his last name was Keynes. So the street we lived on was called Keynes Road. So we lived on adjoining streets. We lived in these houses that were identical, brick for brick. <laughs> you know, a, a development of like 50 houses, all the same. Sounds and, like Levittown. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very much so. If it had been larger and took in more real estate, it would have ex- resembled that exactly. Yeah. Now, Leah, there's a question I'm dying to ask you. Tommy can talk like no one I've ever met. The man... The man can talk like you get him going and he does not stop. Sometimes when I'm editing the podcast, I just have to drop a section because there's, there's no break between words. Was Tommy's father the same way? Was he a big talker? We were, we were what I might call wordsmiths. Mm. And we were interested in words, especially ones that other people wouldn't know the meaning of. Yes. So we used those quite a bit. And, uh, uh, my friend, Tommy, would find words as we would both, when we were off by ourselves, we'd get the dictionary and find words that we figured other people wouldn't know, and then just drop them in all over the place the next time we saw each other. So with the both of us doing that, there was one word, uh, and, uh, and, and Tommy, that you have there remembered it. <laughs> it's called, it's scrofulous. It's, scrofulous. I think it's a, it's a Latin word. Yeah. It means... It means things like uh, shoddy, yeah, like uh, man- infected. Mangy. Mangy, man- mangy yeah. is a great, a great <laughs> yeah. word. Scrofulous is what that means. Mangy. And so uh, Tommy and I both had the, the, the ambition to have more words that people didn't know and use them to befuddle as many people as were possible. <laughs> and so uh, I met Tom in, in elementary school. We both went to St. John of the Cross. That's where I met him, mm-hmm. moving into that housing development. And then we became friends later on as the swim club opened up and uh, in, in about a year or so afterwards. And we'd play basketball a lot together because well, I think we both had hoops in our driveways. Yeah. And, uh, and we were both faced with the task of getting into college. So that was becoming more difficult there were more kids trying to do it so their standards were becoming more rigid and you had to be better with your college board scores and your aptitude tests and your and your grades of course right now uh, first let me say hearing you tell that story about tommy's dad made me so emotional because it sounded so much like tommy like it, it just yes. sounds. It just sounds so much like something young Tommy would do. Tommy, like, how how did you feel hearing that for the first time? Like, if it's, I'm almost crying, you must have been a mess. Yeah. So, like, I this is these come from. So this is Lee go. Lee and I go back talking on the phone. Lee, how long do you think we've been talking on the phone for? I I don't. I know. I spoke to him once uh, when I was living at the, at the in the apartments in Ben Salem. So that we're going back probably. Oh, geez, six or seven years. And, yeah. uh, and I've been I, here for 20. I got divorced out of Texas and had to come here in 1993 or something like that. And where or, are you uh, now? 
I'm in West LA. Okay. On uh, Washington Boulevard and Inglewood Boulevard, kind of that neighborhood, West LA. Okay. Culver City. So yeah. you said you were you were working to get into college. Now Tommy told me your your goal was to get was it the Yale dive team? Yes. Okay. So tell us I, about that. I applied and went to went to Yale to interview and speak to the swimming coach and speak to everybody. And as as it happened, I did not I did not wind up going to Yale. I did want to go. I did want to do it. The Vietnam War had come up in the meantime, mm. and uh, it was more difficult to maintain your student deferment if you weren't using it. So the additional time that it would take to get into Yale, I think there was some like uh, there were there were some things they wanted me to do. It would have given my I'd have had to reapply for my student deferment. Mm-hmm. And it was chancy whether or not that would have worked, and I might have gotten drafted. So, uh, as it happened, I went. I went to Villanova just to make sure I was going to go somewhere rather than basic training right. for my <laughs> freshman year of college. Did you and, end up serving at all? Yes. Okay, you I, served I, stateside, right? I, I, I wound, wound up serving stateside, but that wasn't what most people were doing. Right. They, were all, they were all going. Yeah. Yes. And, and uh, so I, I got in and enlisted and uh, went all through my, my years here stateside. That's awesome. And what did you do while you were there? I was, uh, I had various... Uh, MOS, uh, what, MOS is what they called it, mm-hmm. and uh, job description is what it means. Yeah, and uh, I still remember my my number. I would shout out. You know, <laughs> have to you know be standing at attention there. But uh, so I I got out and uh, wound up being stateside the whole time. Thank God. Yeah. And, uh, because my dad, I think he, he has, I don't know, three brothers, and they all ended up going. And my dad... Every, every, everybody was going. Yes. And my dad was the only person who ended up not going because they had a lottery, I think. And if, they, if your birthday was within a certain range, you didn't have to go. And my yeah. dad still had the ticket. He showed me. He's like, best lottery I ever won. And I was like... <laughs> you, you bet, man. Yeah. So that's what, my, my dad did the same thing because he, he knew he was going to get drafted relatively soon after graduation. So my right. father tried to defer in terms of – so he kept getting different assignments. So he uh, – and first thing he did was he enrolled in uh, officer training school. So he did – I think he did that out in Fort Sill in Oklahoma – um, and then he kept going for all these different new certifications. And the next one, the last one that he had, and I remember my mom saying like, you know, if he gets through this one and gets to the next part, um, he's not gonna, he's most likely not going to have to go over. And he got to the, this, it was communication school and it was learning how to intercept communication. So the, one of the things that my dad has is one of these old, like, it's probably like, uh, I don't know, about three inches in diameter, this big patch. Um, and it says 
Mung Choa Mountain, and it has a big radio tower on the top of this mountain. And that was what they did was they were stationed up there. And their idea was is that they were um, intercepting enemy transi- uh, transmissions. transmissions. They were, yeah, they were supposed to basically um, take that information that they were intercepting and then pass it along to uh, interpreters who would then go ahead and determine whether the information was correct or if it was like a you know false flag type of thing where they were trying to send them in the right. wrong direction. Or if um, you're going to call in the bombers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I know um, when my dad came home, uh, he, he ended up having to go twice. So he went first from 67 to 68. And then the next time he went was from 1970 to 1971. Because I remember when... Uh, Right when he came home, or no, I forget exactly how it worked, but I know there was something that coincided with my sister, uh, Patty, uh, my oldest sister. She was born um, in July of 1971. There's something either the, her birth coincided with him leaving or her birth coincided with her, him coming home, but I think it was actually Patty was born and then three or four days later, he had to leave. I think that's how the story oh, goes, but, I, but yeah, leaving an infant, you know? Um, and then of course my mom is significantly <sighs> younger than my father. So, you know, my mom at the time was 19 uh, maybe 20. And she's like there with a little tiny baby in the middle. My mother grew up in, Lo- my mom grew up in Logan. So there's my mother in the middle of like, uh, you know, I think at this point, I think she was in North Carolina and maybe she was back in Oklahoma at this point, but I remember her saying like, Tommy, I was in the middle of nowhere. I knew nobody. I have this teeny tiny little baby and I'm basically a kid. Like, I don't know what to do with my, she goes, there were so many times where she goes, I remember picking up the same magazine, reading the same article, doing the exact same. She goes, it was like, you know, that movie Groundhog's Day. She's like, it was like that. She goes, every day was the exact same thing. And I just literally, it was like being in prison. I would just walk over and I would mark the days off in the calendar until I knew Tommy was coming home. And I was like, Oh Jesus. Like, and, and thinking like, it's just devastating because there's one of those things that you're thinking like, Oh my God, this woman by herself in the middle of nowhere, young with a child going, I wonder if my husband's going to be one of the people that comes home. Like, you know, and she always said that uh, because of the way base housing worked, and I guess when they would do the death announcements, they would do them at relatively the same time every morning. And my mom would wake up and she said she would see, she goes, you would literally see them, um, two officers come and do the walk up um, and, you know, knock on the door. People just totally destroyed leaving that meeting. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolute devastation. And it's like, um, you know, it it, it was the saddest time. The most yeah. inhumane time, the most incredibly calloused, un- unhuman, inhuman, just inconsiderate set of circumstances. When you're, you're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, there's no escape of it. It was a horrific time. Yeah. And there a horrific no war. I mean, you hear the stories of how legendary the protests were and everything to try to stop that war. Did, how how was it bearing witness to that Lee while also being enlisted? It was, there was all kind, all every conceivable reaction to it. Uh, yeah. I, I was scared shitless, not knowing what to do and trying to do the right thing. And, and lots of people were just not knowing what to do and doing the wrong thing. And it was, 
uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how to describe it other than my my heart goes out to, to Tom here yeah. for for having had to deal with that in the most difficult way. Yeah, right. and it's, so for people that don't know, uh, if you guys haven't listened before, this is uh, so my father passed away from uh, pancreatic cancer uh, shortly. In, well, he died in July of 1987, so I was I was just I had just turned five in April, um, and. Uh, my mom ended up joining a class action lawsuit against uh, the United States government because of uh, they linked a bunch of different uh, neurodegenerative diseases and cancers to the use of Agent Orange. Uh, Agent Orange yes. was the, the defoliant that they would spray yes. in areas to kind of because it, it, it if right it make you be able jungle. to see the enemy better. Yeah, so um, but it killed it, both the enemy and the good guys. Right? Yeah. I actually think something there was something in the lawsuit that actually called it, it, it the, the way they termed it was friendly in involuntary friendly fire. Like they, they didn't mean to do it, but ultimately their actions caused the death of, uh, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Um, because anybody that was exposed to it, um, depending on the levels that you were exposed. But uh, my father being stationed on the top of this mountain, in order to clear the space to build all these radio towers and the housing and the, you know, they all the- They had to defoliate everything. Precisely. So, um, yeah, that's one of the biggest things. And, and it's impacted my life. And it's one of these things that, you know, you read about, you know, when you're a kid and they teach you about the Vietnam War as a kid. And you're like, oh, it's a, it's a war. And it's like, Oh no, this is a very real, it has very real repercussions, things that resonate into today, you know? Yes. Um, So Lee, uh, did you keep in touch with, uh, with Tommy's father throughout the war? Were you guys still in contact with each other? I thought, I think at that time that we were both involved. I think I knew that he was in the service too. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew that we were both in it, and uh, my my time to have any time to have a life aside from that was nil. It was just you know that's all there was, and uh, I, I think, as I recall, feeling as though we had gotten out of touch, but you know justifiably because of all that was going on, yeah, and uh, and then would be looking forward to you know, getting back together as we both got back into Philadelphia, where I figured we would both go back to. I, as I got out of the service, I did do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then at that time and going forward, I just began to get this feeling that we had gotten out of touch. I didn't know what happened un, until I spoke to Tommy that we're speaking to now. Yeah. And, uh, was devastated, of course. So you didn't even know that he had passed until you talked to Tommy, who's Tommy, my co-host here, who's on the podcast. Yes, with yeah. him. yes. Y- years later, I don't know how many years. Yeah, I, 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 I want to put it back now. Like I actually, I remember there was a point in time when I had just graduated from Temple and I had gotten a degree in journalism and I wanted to write about my father, and I was like, let me talk to some people um, that knew my dad. So I started with. Chucky Doherty and my mom and, and, and a couple of guys my dad was friendly with at King's College up in Wilkes-Barre. And right. uh, Chucky Doherty said, um, you might want to talk to Lee Caparello. 
Lee, Lee is somebody you want to get in touch with. Lee might know because Lee and him were really, really close. And he said, when you talk to him, mention B-ball. The way you – B-ball. Like B-E-E hyphen B-A-U-G-H. B-ball. What is that? Because Tommy, Tommy was, was a brilliant basketball player. Both the strategies, the uh, abilities, the skills necessary. You know, uh, I, I, didn't, I never recalled there being a three-point shot in basketball until about six or seven years ago. That's how far <laughs> behind the times I was. I don't know how long it's been in existence, but it only came to my knowledge about that time, maybe 10 years ago. And uh, so he was able to do that back then. And, uh, and was tall and thin, and a couple of his buddies, like uh, one of the Cronins, oh, yeah. uh, Billy Cronin, Billy, was yeah. also the same way, and uh, some other people. And, uh, yeah, so he was just a, a great basketball player. And so I had a backboard in my, garage, my driveway, and I think so did, so did uh, Tommy. Yeah. So we, we would always be on a basketball court shooting hoops while we were talking. That's actually something you brought up before is like you guys would just kind of shoot around and then just talk about life and just, yes. talk, yeah. And it is just, it became this kind of like bonding. Like that's how you, you, you facilitated a conversation over let's shoot hoops. Like yes. let's go play some b-ball. Oh, uh, well he could drive a year before I could. Hmm. So that, that was, that was key. And so we wound up going out on a double date and I remember uh, you guys, the Doherty's had a 1958 Chevy station wagon with the four red lights in the back. Do you remember that? <laughs> They're one on top of the other, right? No, they were left and right of each other. They were horizontal, horizontally. Yeah. The one light had two, the one tail light had two, and the other tail light had two. And I think yours was blue and white. And the family would show up for mass in that on Sunday. Uh, Tommy, Chucky, mom and dad, and Patty. Yeah. And uh, so that was the car that I went out on my first date in, <laughs> I think. Uh, Tommy came over to pick me up. Either the dates were showing up at my house or he was coming over to pick me up and then we were going to get them. But I remember uh, having gotten all spruced up and getting ready and I don't want to make too much of a big deal out of it, make him feel self-conscious. But when he came over and he went to park the car, he pulled it up onto the curb and then it bounced off the curb and stuff like that. And it was, you know, it was, uh, it was sort of comedic in a way <laughs> between the two of us, you know, going out on one of our first dates here, the two of us together. But it, it was very cool and it was very fun. And uh, we spoke about all those things, you know. Being in the service, not being in the service, uh, you know, getting laid for the first time, all that stuff, you know, uh, the, the pivotal things for young people to talk about. Yeah, we but... honored all of them. <laughs> so how'd the first date go? I remember my first date and I, I was like 16, but I was way behind. I didn't know how stuff worked. So I did it like, like how you see in, in movies in grade school. Like I bought right. her like a stuffed animal and I thought you like asked them to be your girlfriend right away. So it was all very awkward. How did yours yes. go? It had tinges of being awkward, I think. But I had been going, uh, I, I think 
I don't know who I took. I don't remember who went on the date, but I was still chasing a girl who had been my girlfriend in second and third grade. I was precocious. I started early. So, uh, but it may have well been uh, these two people that we joined the swim club with. One of the things that I, I, I thought that was really uh, kind of telling is when you talked about my dad, um, you have, um, you're, you're, you're great with words, but you have a way of like, you were just so fond of him. And I know he was a little bit older than you, but um, yeah, I always kind of like, I, I always kind of pined for stories of like telling things about my dad. And one of the stories that I remember you told me was uh, you guys had gone to, I think you were out in someone's driveway, you were playing basketball, but you had talked about just where this all ends up. What are we doing with life? What does this all mean? And that kind of like existential kind of questions. And I thought to myself, you know, uh, I, I don't have much to remember my dad by in terms of like actual, like, you know, stories. But it was great right. because it, it lines up with everything else I've seen. Like the books that he has, the, my father was an avid reader, so he would just constantly write in the margins of books. Yes. And, uh, a, a consummate intellectual yeah. in, in, in every way to, you know, fits the description perfectly mm. and uh, is, is comfortable with it. And the, the conversation was uh, as as enjoyable as you can imagine and, uh, and challenging. And we would, we would compete in, in some ways for, uh, you know, larger vocabulary words and to be as, uh, prolific and, uh, and as descriptive and as, um, analytical as you could possibly be with, with every sentence that you would say. So to communicate the two of us was thoroughly enjoyable, a real, a real treat. And, you know, two people ver- working very hard to- at it. And, and Tommy was extremely good at being an avid reader. I wasn't the avid reader that he was. I had to like beat myself up to, to get Catcher in the Rye read and to get, you know, uh, the, 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 an English book that we read uh, for one of the years in high school that I don't recall is the title of, but a, a very well, well, well-known book. And, uh, and so we found a lot of time discussing those things, uh, but also, you know, putting this vocabulary that we developed somehow or another to use in places where it hadn't really been used before, you know, the, the Vietnam War protest, the general protest. So how did you, so you didn't hear that older Tom, you didn't hear that Tommy's father had passed until young Tommy here called you to ask about his father. I, I think that's, it's entirely possible. My memory is not as perfect as it ought to be. Right. Uh, uh, well, I'm older, so it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't last in a, in a perfect form. So I, I don't really recall, but what I do recall was thinking that we had gotten out of touch and that everything was okay. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't until speaking to Tommy Jr. that uh, I found out the awful truth. It must have been mind-blowing to have Tommy Jr. call you and say, like, you know, 
my father has oh. passed and can you tell me about him oh man I, and I, I i i want to do well and to give information and to make tommy feel better in any way that's humanly possible and right I, i'm 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 afraid that there's always some sadness attached to it and i know that there is so i'm so grateful that in my head i'm going like i when my, my uncle child chucky doherty said yeah contact this guy and then i was like this guy's famous he's not going to answer a you're gonna answer an email are you out of your mind yes he is if he he finds out you're tommy's son (laughs) he certainly is and i i thought to myself i i actually i remember standing in uh the kitchen i had in ben salem and i remember standing there for a while just kind of staring at the number like oh man like if he picks up my worst fear was that you picked up like I, I'm in my head because I got I don't I had so many questions I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But and, the, and, the I, night- and I, I loved your dad like crazy, and I wouldn't have cared where you where you'd start. I just felt this tremendous drive to want to fill in the blanks for you as much as I could and in any way, and to hopefully avoid the the, the almost. The, the the concomitant sadness that would that would come yeah and and wanting to only wanting to help but realizing it was something that was very difficult yeah it, but it's it in in talking about it i think i've worked through a lot of the things of making sure that i had a a more full understanding of the person he was because there's a lot sure. of times where I've looked at things and I go, especially when I look at pictures, uh, this is a consistent thing. My sister and I, when we get together, we will go through old pictures and, and you know, we'll see pictures of my father. And when we talk about him, we say, daddy, uh, daddy did this. And then remember when daddy did that thing? And I see pictures. And then sometimes I don't know if I actually have that memory of that moment or if right. I'm reliving the story someone has told to me or relayed to me. And I think that's a difficult thing for me. But at first I was like, oh my God, is, is this all just made up? Am I just living someone else's story? Or do I really remember this? And what I've come to the conclusion is, I don't give a shit. <laughs> right. I, I, don't, I don't care. Memory, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. It's, ma- it's, it's precisely. What, what more you actually know about daddy. Yeah. And it, it's the, the fact that I have even that emotionality connected to that moment whether it's fake or real, I, I don't care. I don't care. Right, right. I, I, the fact that it's, it's something that I can connect with, because there are, there, honestly, like if I'm being really honest, it's, there are very few things I can connect with. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I found through this is, you know, a lot of times when I bring him up to people, they just, you know, they kind of go, oh, well, yeah, he was a really nice guy. He was really smart. And yeah, it was a shame. Like that's the extent of the conversation they want to have. Whereas Lee has been like, how much time you got? But do you have yes. to like, do you have like, honestly, what time are your kids going to bed? What, 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 yeah. like, and, and I'm like, okay, good. And the other thing is, is like, I went to talk to Lee. Um, uh, what was that Friday evening or no, no. Was it Friday? Yeah. Friday evening. And I had to cut our conversation short because I was like, look, 
uh, I want to make sure that we're okay for when we talk on Monday. But um, one of the things that I really want to, you know, just kind of get across to you is that I truly appreciate what you're doing. And I want to make sure that like you understand how much I appreciate this. And I said, but I have to go. Uh, we only ended up talking for about 20 minutes. I was like, my daughter has a fever. And I, I didn't, yes. I, he was, he was like, yo, yeah, that's, that's, that's the most concrete reason for, for anything to do in the whole world for you being a father yes. and being a, a good father and, and showing the, the, the beauty of that and the love involved in it and the care that you feel and, and want to, to give. And, uh, and, and that could only make me love you personally more. There's yeah. no, there's no other, other way. It's something that I respect well, most I, about life. This, about life. This is the one thing is that I mentioned that to probably, I don't know, five or six people like, Hey, look, I, I'm not going to be doing things or whatever. You know, the baby has a fever. Saturday morning, I woke up to a text from Lee just checking in, making sure the baby's okay. And I literally, it brought a tear to my, I got choked up. I was like, oh, holy man. shit, this guy is like literally, when has people, never met. Yeah, when ahead, people please. really give a shit, it's oh, yeah. rare. Dude, it's, and it's beautiful. Insane. When you it can tell just, they genuinely give a shit and yeah. they only give a shit because they give a shit. They don't want anything. It's just. That's right. And There's that's no the exchange. best. Yeah. It just it, comes, from, comes from the heart. That's yeah. the best. But this so, is the. F- Oh, yeah, I, go wanted, ahead, Keith. I wanted to ask now, first, let me say, I've thought about this a lot lately because Tommy, you lost your father when you were five. And yeah. my girlfriend has a child who's now 14. We've been together almost a year and her father died when she was 10. Mm. So that's like a connection that I think about now. And it's really, it's tragic. Like, it's really sad. I mean, I wish that this kid still had her father in her life just like I wish you could have had those experiences growing up because it's, I can't, I have both of my, both of my parents are still alive. So it's something I can't even really conceive of. I mean, a little bit because my brother died, but you know, I I can. So this is the one thing and you can relate to this too, Keith. And I'm sure Lee, you have some aspect of this as well, but I look at those things that are like sometimes, you know, they are tragic by definition, right? Mm -hmm. But they've, they have shaped, the person that you have become like the reason I have the things I have and the, the, the motives I try to put forth in the world and the, the job I try to do the friends I try to, you know, that I keep the people that are around me. I, I I feel that all of it came from this. I think one of the things that people go, I'm so sorry to hear your father passed. One of my immediate thoughts after that initial, like, ugh sadness that kind of goes along with it is, my sister and I became unbelievably close because mm-hmm. of that. My mother worked, right. uh, my mother worked a lot and um, my sister took care of me. I mean, God made, bless her. made me dinner, put me to bed, checked my homework, uh, drove, wow. me play, drove me to soccer practice. Everything that like my mom couldn't do because she was at work or because she was trying to keep a household, just my sister took up for. And it's actually the reason I got into like punk rock and, and that type of music is because of her, because she would be, I would be in her room constantly just talking to her and I idolized everything about, I would be like, Bethy, what are you listening to? And And that brought us here. And it brought us all to this (laughs) part, like to this moment, this exact moment of us all looking into a computer. (laughs) God God bless your sister. (laughs) I know. She's a, she's a Catholic school teacher up in Quakertown. Oh, wonderful. Tell, <laughs> tell her I send my love and, and, and just 
thank her for being the sweetheart of a human being that she is. I will, Lee. I'll, I'll text her right when we're done. So here's cool. a tie-in to, a, I think, a conversation Tommy was alluding to earlier, Lee, with, with you and his father in the basketball game. How did you decide to start focusing on music? Now, I know you came from a musical background, and I think your parents played, and you played at a young age, piano and, and stuff like that, right? Uh, I started studying guitar when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to do it when I found my mother's mandolin, and it was little, and I was about four or five years old. So I always messed with it, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 11, I asked for a guitar. It was the first couple of years of Elvis Presley. You know, Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel were hits. Yes. And so I got the guitar, and I started to study. There was a guitar teacher in Philadelphia, Ann Brown. She's a country and western guitar player. And she could sing. She could yodel. It was, it was cool. And I started with her. I studied for two years with her. And then uh, I started playing a bunch myself, playing in bands of my own construction. And then eventually, as uh, College got out of the way, especially and all that other stuff. I started going and auditioning for bands, mm. and I got a job in a Philadelphia blues band that was we opened for everybody that came through town at the Electric Factory, which was a big venue. So we played with Eric Clapton and Cream, and we played with everybody else. Can Heat, uh, and that was a Sweet Staven Chain. Sweet Staven Chain. Yeah, Danny Starobin started that band. He was the lead guitar player, and I was the harmonica player and lead singer. So what was it like to open for those bands? You said it was at the Spectrum? Uh, Electric Factory. Oh, Electric Factory. Uh, I'm sorry. No, for Cream was a much bigger place. It was the the Spectrum or someplace like that. And were those, were they like... It was a a revolving stage. It went around in a circle while you're playing on it. And were Cream as legendary back then, like, as they are now? Like, when you're opening for Cream back then, is it like, holy shit, we're opening for Cream? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Eric Clapton was well-renowned, and and so was Cream. And uh, that that trio of Ginger Baker, Eric Clapton, and Jack Bruce, they were all great players, So and they would fill arenas. And so when we got to open for them, it was hugely packed. It was a basketball arena somewhere in Philly. What's it like to play a gig that big? Is it just a sea of people? Yes. Wow. And you, you, you come out of some hallway to locker rooms for the, you know, the 76ers or something. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you open, you, your eyes feast on this ocean, this, this stormy sea of humans. Wow. That goes on just up and away forever. And we got on the stage and started to play. And I remember turning back and seeing Eugene, the bass player, holding on to his microphone stand, trying to keep his balance because the circle, the stage was going around in a circle. <laughs> Man, it was, it was great. When, you're, when was, you play that gig, do you get to see Eric Clapton at all? At all or are they just like hidden got, away? We, they were sort of hidden away. I think we got to say hello. That was it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, not the, not the, hey, come on in the dressing room. How you guys doing? So how long you been playing or any of that? <laughs> yeah. right. There was no meet and greet. <laughs> no, none of that. From my limited time in music, it, that seems to be the way it goes. Like the bigger bands just stay off and do their own thing. And right. I don't know, there's not a, too much mingling. Do you remember? No, they, they don't need to do too much politicking. They've already gotten the thing to the place where it needs to be. Exactly. And they don't, they don't feel the impetus to do that. Right. So... So I still wanted to to feel that urge, and to uh, to do what you could do for people who were in awe of what you're doing, and show a little bit of uh, gratitude to them for it. It was it was cool. It it always was responded. It was responded to in a good way every time it was employed. So how do you end up with uh, Sweet Staven Chain? transitioning from that to fear it's a pretty stark contrast it is indeed <laughs> and uh there was I, I i heard about this thing called punk rock mm -hmm. and i went out to see it and i i kind of dug it it was uh a little different where did you go and check it out here in la at okay. brendan brendan mullins club called mm -hmm. the mask and it was downstairs in this basement and Brendan ran it, and he would hire the local punk rockers to come in there by the fives or tens of bands. And on Friday or Saturday night, everybody interested in that sort of thing would be there. So after seeing it once or twice and seeing this energy that I wanted to partake of, the simplification of the music and the banality of the music in some cases uh, was not what attracted me, but it was the energy of this new thing about music that did attract me and i wanted to put my own two cents in it uh write lyrics for it change this sort of musical things being done to add to it and and go from there and see where it where it took me mm -hmm. and i wound up liking it and so did the people that came to see it so we kept doing it and then we wound up getting TV stuff and uh, uh, on the road gig stuff up in San Francisco, especially the uh, the, the the punk rock club up there that uh, the San Francisco Brendan Mullen was doing, hmm. who we went up to work for quite a bit uh, as time went on. And then we found out that there was punk rock clubs in every town across the whole country. Wow. So we piled our asses in the van, had been in the studio with a couple of recording projects took a bunch of records and tapes with us, and off we went. Drive across the country. We drove to New York, Philadelphia, down through the South, New Orleans, in through Texas, and back home. And it was great. Did you we, have we, contacts, or did you just get in the van and you, had, and you had to track down the club? No, we were a little better than doing that. I'd make contacts with the people booking the clubs that we needed to go to and space them out in a way so we could get there. Mm -hmm. and and uh, that wound up working really well. Did you play CBs in New York? CBGBs. I, I believe we did. We did play there, and, uh, and I think we, we ran into some of the Ramones and uh, the other people we were playing with were regionally uh, doing well. It was very cool. Did New York was a good, good punk rock town. Oh, did yeah. Did you find that like because a lot of at that time, like the beginning of punk rock kind of had that 
that sloppiness to it that you kind of got like, you're like, I'm a proficient musician. Like I can play this damn thing. Like, what are you guys doing? Did you find that like you had that back and forth? Like, why are you guys not prepared? Like what? Right. Well, we, we had been playing, I had been playing for like more than 20 years. I started playing when I was eight or nine, started taking lessons when I was 10 or 11. So by the time we got through all the music I played in New York in jazz uh, rock bands with bona fide jazz players, you know, uh, Bruce Dittmas was our drummer. Um, our, our keyboard player was a name that you would have known. Uh, uh, a guitar player named Bruce Johnson, who could really beautifully play and knew all the 13th chords and the minor nines and the flat fives and the, you know, everything you need. He knew mm -hmm. all of that. And, and so it, we were not new to it. We, were, we weren't going to get up and play bad like lots of people were doing because they had just started playing a week or two before and, and we're not prepared. We were prepared. We were ready. Did you find musicians that like, did you, when you were searching people out, you were like, all right, uh, this guy has a look or were you like, this dude can play and we can fix the look. Like we can get him yeah. to. Right. It was, it was all the player. Yeah. That, that's what we were looking for. I didn't care what people look like. You know, we could, uh, we, we could have gone, gone that away, but I was so on it about the playing. I wanted it to be so perfect and so exact, so right that uh, there, there wasn't the chance that someone who was incapable of, of doing that was going to be hired here for this thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This thing wanted to be uh, uh, a, a jazz rock fusion of its own. So everybody that played was experienced. So you ended up, Fear ended up in that punk rock documentary, Decline of Western Civilization. Yes. And that opened up some doors, right? Absolutely. So how did, that, you, end, how did you end up on that? Uh, she lived in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. and That's came a, out to, Penelope, the director? Penelope Spiros, yes. Yes. And she came out to clubs to hear us. Mm -hmm. And we, we hit it off. We had been signed to her boyfriend, Bob Biggs, Mm -hmm. who started Slash Records and uh, the, made our first recordings there. So we, we had been recorded, we had been experienced players, and we went out into the clubs and started playing. We were able to blow away a lot of the competition. Right, because you actually knew how to play. <laughs> that, that's very, very important. Yeah. But, we, but I, I wouldn't like put it all in uh, flourishing, lilting guitar leads. You know, it was it was barrel house thrash, uh, power chords, mm -hmm. along with the other stuff, the note for note, note to note stuff. Right. And we were a trio when we started. And I had not always been the main guitar player in a band, mm -hmm. or the only one for that matter. And so uh, it it was very cool, very good experience for me to have this extra yardage to be able to fulfill during the course of a show and our drummer spit and uh, the dirt derf the bass player were all very skilled mm -hmm. so uh, both very skilled and so we started as a trio eventually hired philo and we were that quartet for the next oh five seven years eight years something like that 
So fear is legendary for being fear. You know, there's the banning from Saturday, Saturday Night Live and a, a lot of antics. Was, was, that, was some of it tongue-in-cheek? Or, I mean, were you guys really like, we're fucking, we're punk rock, we're, we're doing this, this is who we are? It was 61 and 50% of the other, and they would, they would migrate. Yeah. Right, they go back and forth, uh, uh, depending on, you know, what what was more important or at the moment, at, at that particular moment, and uh, yeah, I I really liked the the whole idea of doing this thing, which was virtually different than everything else that had ever been done before. It was a new style, and we were able to add a little oomph to it, a little, a little, uh, definitely some showmanship and definitely some musicianship. So oh, it, was, sure. it, it was a joy. That's really cool when you can go to see a band and like there's part of it. Um, Keith and I used to really like this band and it was, I love the music that they made on like when they would record. However, seeing them live at the drive-in was one of these bands that just the onstage antics and the theatrics that went along with it made the entire show an experience. It wasn't just like, oh, right. I hope they play this song. It was like, I want to see what these guys do during this because they, That's right. they just went crazy. It was, it was just a great experience to go and see them and be like, wow, these dudes can play and they can just like, they're like, you know, flipping out, jumping off of stuff, jumping into the crowd. It's yeah. it just awesome. Yeah. Well, being, being that it, it looks for all the world as though the idea of there being more gigs of any kind for anyone anywhere is kind of iffy at the moment. It's um, weird. We did not expect it to be going this long. And, you know, uh, who, who would have guessed that music would just stop? Live music. Right. You That's know? right. But and, there's, there's basically been no choice. Right. It's, you know, you, you don't want to take a chance on losing your life to put on another show. Right. So drive-ins came into the conversation. You know, maybe it was a, a possible thing to do. You could set up, put all the people in the cars out in front, and then set up somehow to play way in front of them and keep the two groups separate. But Can you I, imagine I like it, a drive-up like hardcore show, Tommy? <laughs> I can't <laughs> imagine anybody staying where they're supposed to. Yeah, exactly. hardcore, hardcore anything. No, it's just people crashing cars into each other. <laughs> right, it, it could be. So it might, might not have been the best idea in the world. And I'm not sure it's catching on. So, Lee, you mentioned, you know, just being drawn to the energy of the music. And I didn't know this world of music existed at all. And when I saw it in its modern form, I don't know, it was 98 or 99. And I just watched a room completely explode and people pulverizing each other. And I was scared out of my mind. And, and I was hooked from then on. It was, it, was yeah. an, it was an experience like nothing I had ever seen or felt before. And I wanted to keep chasing it. Did you feel the same yes, way absolutely yeah and i was alive to see elvis presley on the ed sullivan show really or steve allen show whichever one it was when he performed first i think it was ed sullivan yeah, yeah. and I, I saw all of that and i saw all the rock groups all the american bandstand rock groups and as all that music became the oldies and then we had san francisco and those bands and uh, the uh the drug influence of the hippie culture and the influence that had on the music and all that. But still, I felt like you. 
I was seeing something I'd never seen before, an energy I'd never experienced, mm-hmm. and I was hooked. Yeah. I was just hooked on the first few exposures to it. And I still am. I can walk down the street listening to a certain record, and I'll, I feel high. Like I feel like I'm gonna, I want to run into somebody right now. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask, you had a, a big fan in John Belushi, who's, yes. who's one of my idols, because I did comedy, I did acting, I did a lot of drugs too, so there was that. And he, you know, before, before I figured out how to help myself out, I would read about people I idolized, John Belushi being one of them. And uh, so, what, I mean, what was it like hanging out with him? It, uh, you hear all the stories and everything, but what, tell us about your I, personal experience. Well, I had been a big fan, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, one of these days, I get a phone call. It says, hey, Lee. Yeah, who's this? He said, it's John Belushi. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, man, what, what are you doing? I was a big fan, too. Yeah. And so and we, we just hit it off on the phone. We talk on the phone a few times a week. Then he came out to California, or I think he had a movie job or something. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, he wasn't in town a day or so before me and Spit, I think maybe Durf was already out of the band. Me and Spit went to On the Rocks, uh, over top of the Roxy, a restaurant. Yes. On Sunset Boulevard. That's the club and, he used to go to. I think he was there like the night before he died. Uh, John. Yeah. And, and so that's where we met him. And uh, me and Spit and John. Spit was so nervous, he was trembling. He could barely talk. <laughs> and it was, it was just great, man. And so we, we went around town a bit, and we became friends. Mm-hmm. And, and we started to... I was doing movies, too. So he was doing movies, so was I. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it, we just... There was lots of common ground. So we became friends, and then eventually... John saw this golden opportunity to ask the staff at Saturday Night Live if we could headline, we right. could be the musical guests. Right. And it worked. He, got right. he, said, he said he would host if you guys played, right? Uh, something like that. I, right. I heard that. And yeah. So I believe he did. Right? He did host and we played. Yes. We played the, the two sequences you play. Uh, if, when you're a musical guest, you play... Two, two songs in the first part of the show mm-hmm. and two songs in the second. And we did that two songs in the first part of the show just to the regular Saturday Night Live audience. For the second part of the show, John had invited between 50 and 100 punk rockers from Washington, D.C. to come up to Manhattan right. and to come to the show, which he did. And they were in a green room somewhere getting drunk and beating each other up for the first half of the show. And then they were ushered in to the studio to watch us play our second set of songs. And as they did, the audience just looked like they were about to, they were scared shitless. Right. And then they, they, they got the kids in the studio and we came out and played and they just, they were no, I no longer, no longer got one out of my mouth or one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. 
and they were up on the stage with us, yes. diving off the stage and having a ball. We were having a great time. And we did uh, something like, uh, we did Let's Have a War and one other song. I don't remember which for the second half. I think we did I Love Living in the City for the first, but it might have been in the second half. So we, we played songs they knew really well, and they were having a ball throwing each other off the stage. And, and at John, one point, uh, Ian Mackay of Minor Thread and uh, Fugazi fame grabbed the microphone and yelled, fuck New York. And I think it right. made it onto the live broadcast. <laughs> it did. It was, it was not able to be bleeped out. And you, you can't, being one person in the band, you can't keep everybody away from every microphone right. when there's so many of them. And you're also trying to deliver a performance. So it, it, got, it got delivered out there. Now, the, the, you always read these articles where they're like, these people did $500,000 worth of damage. That, that's not true, right? Right. That, no. That's, it, it wouldn't have been possible. Right. Even if we had set out to do something like that, <laughs> I, I don't see available <laughs> items that would cost something like that if you destroyed them. Right. Uh, you know, only only if you were to like break all the TV cameras and the mixing board or something right. like that, <laughs> right. could you have have done something like that? But you know, what's the, the there's no advantage in doing that. The show was I knew the show was already scared to death of uh, what might happen. Yes. So I didn't want to give them more reason to be. I wanted to give them reason to consider us a viable musical entity and to use that to further that as our calling card. Right. So you got, did the band get banned from SNL after that? Officially? Uh, since the show got shut down before it was finished, mm -hmm. uh, the, there just wasn't other discussions about it. And, and John didn't live that long after it. Right. So there wasn't time to put together another ap application kind of thing uh, to get ourselves on there, it was just sort of like uh, finished, at least for the moment. Yeah. But w we wanted to maintain whatever oomph we got from it mm -hmm. and bring it to the clubs. And it worked out quite well. Almost everybody saw that. Yeah. I think it's incredible. I, that's why I respect John Belushi so much, because, you know, one, punk rock and the love of it, and two, pulling the strings to get an act like fear on national TV on Saturday night, Saturday yes. night live, which is unheard of. That's just fucking cool. That's right. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. His heart's in the right place. It's a Herculean effort Yeah. To, to, to post something like this right in straight people's face, especially ones who have something to lose people who are running, producing a show, all that kind of thing. Uh, when you were hanging out with uh, with John, did you ever think like, oh man, like this guy's uh, out of control? Because I used to be really out of control. I ask because I used to be really out of control. You can ask Tommy here. Like oh, yeah. sometimes you'd hang out with me and it would be a lot of fun, but sometimes you'd hang out with me and it'd be really scary. Like what was, what was your experience with John? I never saw, I, I saw that as much of whatever there there was at the time in the room right with all of us it felt to me as though he would continue being involved with it until it was gone regardless right. of the amount right i noticed i noticed that about it and 
that was uh, something I recall as a scary thought. Yes. Especially in, in as much as how much ground we were gaining by the instant, by the second. Yes. Yeah. Uh, from, from our relationship with this guy, mm-hmm. with John, yeah. who was a sweetheart. Yeah. R- really, really nice guy involved, uh, uh, whatever the other involvements were. Right. And that's, yeah, he just seemed like, I mean, I don't know him, obviously, but he just seemed like a really nice person. And, you know, I, I can see that because the, the darkest times I went through with that kind of stuff, it was all hidden. Like nobody saw it. Right. It, it was right. all hidden. My family has said that. And I, I kept it hidden from everyone because I wanted to pretend I was normal. So, right. yeah. So I just secluded myself a lot. And it's, it's, so one day, I got a phone call. Yeah. And uh, I was crushed. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I have so many friends, you know, s- since before I cleaned up my act and after, I have know so many people who died, friends or just people I sort of knew. And it's, it sucks because you just never know, yeah. like, like, why am I here? Why are they not? I've had close friends die. And... uh yeah, it, it, it never goes away. You, you know, no. some, sometimes you don't think about it. Some days it hits you like a ton of bricks and you're really yeah. sad and you see things that remind you of that person and it's a, it's a tough thing to deal with. I, I think I knew what, the, what that situation involved back then around that time. I've, I've since... I think tried to block it out so many times. I'm having trouble recalling it. Mm-hmm. And then when I have trouble recalling it, I just leave it go at that and, and try not to, you know, uh, think about it until I have all the, the things fulfilled in my, in my, in my memory of it. Right. I don't want them, don't want them to be there. I don't want to be able to access them. I, it was a, it was a terrible sadness. Absolutely. So in addition to, were you doing acting parallel with music while fear was on the rise? Yes. I was doing flash dance while I'm playing Fuck You, Let's Rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the And dream. I wish I could have brought that to the movie. <laughs> Can you imagine Jennifer Beals doing what she was asked to do in that film with that being the music? That would, that would have been... The, the punk rock dream, you know, that be, because it was, you know, the, the, the straight world that was involved in the film was the enemy to the punk rock world, mm-hmm. right? The, the things of filmdom and being uh, regular, normal, and all that were, were the enemy. They, they weren't things that punkers were out there looking to, to find. Right. They, they had their own brand of thing, and it had its own style to it. And it, it wasn't mainstream television or anything like that. Right. So there was, uh, there was sort of a, uh, it was unusual in a way. The, the, the films I was doing were, were setting records for box office attendance. <laughs> <laughs> Punk rock was not doing that. You know, it was, it, it was uh, get a gig if you can, if the last bunch of bands didn't destroy the place. <laughs> So how did you get started with acting? Now, acting is something I always wanted to do since I was very young, even before music. And then I got involved with music. And then last year, 
I took an acting class and we put on a production of a play that I ended up getting in the lead in. So I finally got to do that and scratch that itch, which was great. And it's just two things I always wanted to do. So how did you decide you wanted to give acting a go? I was in town. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine was John Burnham, who was at William Morris Agency, Mm. I believe. He was my first agent. Okay. I I had several in the meantime, and I still speak to John now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I I wouldn't say he's still in in the circle. And it was, it was, it was something I always would have liked to do too, but thought it was like a severely difficult, different and demanding than music was, which was already difficult and demanding. Yes. So I I wouldn't have gone and taken it upon myself to become an actor by myself had there not been an opportunity. Bingo supplied by John, I think. Mm -hmm. It may have had to do with Flashdance. He may have had something to do with my getting that part, because uh, I went to I did go to read for it with Adrian Line, the okay. director. So and, how how did you? Now I had to learn how to act. I had some natural talent, or at least the teacher told me. But I just kept going to the classes, and then one day it just clicked. Like it, I, I thought it was something that you learn. And then you know how to do it and that's it. But it's not that at all. You have to access that thing every time. And you have to have a way to get there every time. And it, it, took, right. me, it took me a long time to learn that. And it's, it's extremely difficult to do. So what, how did you, what was your experience? Well, I had had some of it already from music. Mm-hmm. I'd been playing in front of people since I'm 11. Yeah. So all those early years made me not be thoroughly afraid of it, uh, more comfortable in it and with it, and more apt to try to say something in particular about it and with it by doing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was more comfortable with it for that reason. And uh, I I think it also was something that uh, made me more desirable as an actor for people who wrote a film that wanted to have somebody do something specific for this part, if I understood what that was, I would be pretty good at it. And it, it helped me do acting, that, that experience that I had had from not being afraid to stand up in front of people and sing, which makes you feel even more naked than oh, yeah. does saying lines. You know, there you just wear in the costume and uh, translating emotions and saying lines and putting your own tilt on it a bit uh, or maybe a lot. But it it came from doing that with music, my uh, eagerness and and, and wanting to do that as as an actor. Yeah, you have to be fearless. And the first acting class I went to, I didn't, have any lines or anything so I, I i was a musician so i just went up on stage and sung a song a cappella that i wrote and it was the scariest thing ever and i i'm yeah. super shy i'm super shy but for some reason when i get up on that stage i can treat it like like it's my job and i can get it done yes yeah the skills and attitudes such as that are very useful you don't want to be scared of it you don't want to be so impressed with it that you uh, 
you don't feel you're able or worthy of it or something, some crazy thing like that. Right. It's, it's just, yeah, pay, pay no attention, but delivering the things that this person whom you are acting would have, would do and, uh, and bring that to the crowd and hopefully they'll like it. So let's talk more about, so you're doing fear, right? You're doing fear, yes. you're doing acting. So where does it all end up? Like take us through some of what happened over the next few years. Oh, uh, let's see. So clue happened over the next couple of few years. Uh, yes. And, uh, several other films, maybe four or five or 10 movies, uh, in my repertoire. And, uh, I, I love making movies and yes. I would love to make more of them, but I love and need to love and need to be involved with music. It's, it's something I have no choice in. It's, it's, it's who wakes up each morning <laughs> yeah. in, in my skin. It's that, that person wants to do music and, and I'm a singer and I'm a guitar player. So it's, it's all those things are in place and I really love it. And I will continue to do that. And, and any film work that comes up, if I'm interested in something about the character or the character period, I'd be very willing to do more of it. I you, thoroughly enjoy it. Do you get scripts still? Like they'll say, hey, maybe you should read for this? I, let's see, what have I gotten lately? I, I'm not getting as many as I have. Mm -hmm. um, I still have friends who are agents. Mm -hmm. uh, John, John Burnham, one of them. And uh, I think if they were to find something that was right or somebody would find some people who are looking for me, they'd turn them on to the, the channels to, you know, to get it together. But it's, it's also a, a thing where uh, I, I, I love the music and will continue keeping that together. I love movie acting too, but I'm not going to go out and, and, and run the streets to try to put that in place. If something happens, I'll be happy to take advantage of it. And I hear I, you. I think, I think I would. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm not really wanting to go and, uh, you know, do 20 appointments a week of readings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel this. It's funny. I feel the same exact way. I, I haven't, I'm not taking the acting class anymore. I, I just don't feel like it's no, something well, I want to do right no, now. It, it taught you what you need to know about yeah. it. it yeah. put you in the place where you can go out there in a place that would for otherwise, and maybe even for you, be uncomfortable. But now that you've taken those classes, that you've done some of it, you know what it feels like, and you know how to bring that out of yourself. Yes. You don't, you don't need it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. That's a good perspective. Cause like, it's like it's I would start totally a band, I would start a band tomorrow, but if there was like another play happening, I don't think I'd do it right now. Cause Tommy and I are so busy with this podcast. We do this every single week. So I'd rather yeah. do this. I was going to say like, that's the thing is like, you got what you wanted from it. Now you, now you can just pursue the way you want it to do. Like, so when you see something that you're like, all right, that interests me, I'm into that. Cause what you took from that was like, and, and I, I've never acted in my entire life, but I get up in front of 30 
11-year-olds for a living every day, multiple times a day. That's and acting. You can do it. That's it. You can, I, put I put on a put performance. On a performance. <laughs> you know? And it's, and it's the, the thing of like what you said, Keith, and I, I, I guess that's one of the, the things that's really hard about act, act, acting is kind of like what you said was accessing that that part of your brain and that part of your emotionality where you can just go, okay, so now I can project this to others. Like that's a really difficult thing because I, I always watch movies when um, there was a movie and I saw it and I remember thinking like, did you ever see that movie Sling Blade with Billy Bob Thornton? Yeah. I, I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he wrote, directed and acted in that movie. And I remember watching that movie where I'm like, there's a, a character. Remember John Ritter from um, Three's Company? Yeah, sure. Uh, I was on. I was on Three's Company. Oh, get really? the hell out of here! Really? I'm sure I was. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a scene where Billy Bob Thornton and him are sharing a meal, and this John Ritter has this heartfelt conversation about where he's talking about how he's gay, and he like starts explaining what gay is and and in my head I'm going like I know that's the dude from Three's Company I know that's the dude from Problem Child but in this very moment watching this I believe every single word he's saying he is that per in that moment he is that person he's that guy from a, the south that's closeted it's beautiful is. like that that's what I that's the mistake I made about act acting isn't pretending to no to do that you really no, do it acting you is really do it yeah acting is being that thing yes and some sometimes that's a joy and it gives you great relief for having this opportunity that you yeah. don't normally get exactly if, if you do it right it can be rewarding just in that way not right. only financially career-wise and uh, every other way yeah so i did this play i had the lead i felt like i knocked it out of the park so in my mind i'm like i'm done it's like you with music tommy you you did your first band and you're like that's it that's enough of that yeah (laughs) i still i mean like that's the thing is like i i i always thought about music as like i just i always thought of it as like this is my time with my friends to play stuff that i we want to make together and when we had that band it was like Everything worked. Everything felt good. I there was rarely times when we were together where I felt like I, I'm not comfortable here. Like I don't like this. I and if it was that, there were t- like when it did get to those moments, it was like you. I, I'm not feeling this right now. I don't know what's going on, but this is not cool. Um, and we would talk it through. That was the cool part about being with them. And it's like I actually thought about this is kind of funny. Is that my dad. Uh, ended up almost finishing before he passed away, almost finishing his PhD in economics. And one of my dad's really good friends is Lee Ving, who ended up becoming famous for being a musician. And a kid that I grew up with became really famous for being a musician, Anthony Green. And it's like, what a weird kind of coincidence, things that coincide, things that are just like the universe kind of put out there. And you're like, what a strange set of circumstances for the exact same type of scenario to happen to both of us. Man, and, and my parents were ready to forbid me from becoming a musician. You know, wow. if there were anything like that, that's possible. Once you're 18, you do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. So, but they didn't want me to, to do it and they fought it like cats and dogs. So are you still making music today, Lee? Oh, yes. Still writing. What kind of stuff so, are you doing? Um, I'm, 
I'm just starting to write on a new batch of tunes that are that borrow from the rhythms that fear does. Mm-hmm. Uh, some that are different, absolutely, not having anything to do with what fear does. Uh, some balladesque kind of things. Uh, that would be cool, like, if now you still wrote songs like Fuck Christmas, you know? Uh, right. <laughs> that would be really, that'd be really funny. And do you still have that in you? Of course. <laughs> I love that. Yes. We, we still do all that material. The, the worst of it is, 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 is better. So uh, <laughs> it, we, we still love it. But uh, I still love to, when I see a beautiful woman pass me, I'll go... Uh, Beautiful girls, walk a little slower as you pass me by. <laughs> and I almost every time get a nice reaction to it, at least a little conversation. Oh, that's so, nice. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of things you can do with uh, spoken and sung words. And uh, I, I, I like experimenting with all of it. Yeah. And fear certainly w- was a, a big experimentation, that's for sure. Oh, big time. But, but, but reinforced by all John Belushi's support. May he rest in peace and God bless him. Yes. Yes, he's legendary. Legendary. I've read, I've, I've become a historian on him over the years. I read like all the books and saw all the movies. Did you hear the, le- you must have heard the legendary story where he was trying to get fear on the neighbor's soundtrack and he was going from office to office at Universal, I think, like making everyone listen to it. And he's like, you got to yes. put this in the movie. And you know, and I, yes. I, I really related to that because I used to go to parties. I listened to the most abrasive, crazy music you ever heard. And I would go to parties and put it on. Like they'd be listening to something nice and I'd pop open the CD player, put this on, and I'd be like, this is what we should be listening to. And then everyone right. would get really mad at me. And it was <laughs> <laughs> I would I would get home from a day of going out on uh, movie auditions or some damn thing or... Yeah. looking for mus- musicians or auditioning myself as lead singer in a band somewhere, possibly. Mm-hmm. And I would consistently get a call. Hey, man, did you hear what John did today? <laughs> Every day was something else. Oh, man, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, he always seemed to be up to something. Like he was on the phone all hours of the day and night. Just, yeah. It was just a whirlwind and of like... Both he and I were able to do that thing with the eyebrow. This thing. Oh, yeah, oh, the, this thing. The, right? Yeah. The one eyebrow or the other it. eyebrow. Yeah. Either one I can't or both, do it both. Right? I can't do it both. No. But John and I could both do it with, with both. So we, we'd be there eyebrowing like two idiots. Man, for, <laughs> <you know. laughs> it, it was just a joy knowing him. It, it really was. It was. And life is very strange, as, as you well know. It really is. It's, it's gotta be like, I think about that sometimes. Like I think about my one friend who died of an overdose and I'm like, God, like five years ago we were, you know, like I was trying to stop, he's trying to stop and we call each other like, you want to do it? Yeah. And we buy a bunch of junk food and play video games for two days straight. And I'm like, that was only five years ago. And now I'm here and he's dead. And it's like, time is so strange. And time is very valuable yes. and, and not taking chances that you're not prepared, that the check for which you're not prepared to cash. Oh, yes. I, that, yes. That, I actually, that's good advice. 
I actually had this uh, I had this moment the other day. It was uh, the Thursday or Friday of last week, and I like I, I teach from my basement, so like I have uh, a big whiteboard set up, and all my markers and all my math stuff is down here. So because I have to teach through video, um, I'm literally uh, a floor below where my daughters are playing, and I remember I had a moment of like. I got to grade all this stuff really quick and I got to put all these grades in. And I was like, I can hear them listening to like some Disney song upstairs. I'm like, I'm going upstairs and playing with my kids because here's the thing. I'm never going to regret that and then go, I wish I had put those grades in. Like, fuck that. (laughs) No one's going to ever go, hey, did he put those grades in? Like, but my daughters are going to remember daddy came up from upstairs and played with us. And, and, you know, or the other day we were like we were doing something and it was they were getting ready for school and they were like, so they have online school. So I was like, all right, well, let's let's do something like fun. And they were like. But we have to get ready for school. And I'm like, let's just go take the dog for a walk. Let's go get, get in the car. Let's go to the park. We'll find a path that nobody else is on and we'll walk it. And they were like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, what's mommy going to say? I'm like, who cares? Like, what, what, mommy's going to come with us. Like, what's, what's the difference? And they're like, but our schoolwork's not done. I'm like, yeah, in 40 years, you're not going to go, oh, I wish I had done that. So you go, yeah, get out of here. They're going to remember, like, yeah, and it, and I, I, I consistently think of that like now because like you've you've brought up several times like talking about my dad and it's like the the fondest memories I have are of like especially when my dad would come home from work because he had, he took the train down to Philly like he would come home from work he would have a you know a like a three piece suit on he would come back yeah newspaper under the arm yes like literally something out of like you know like it was like out of leave it to beaver like it was that type of shit and you would just go my father did the very same thing you (laughs) could not have told the difference between between your dad and my dad with their backs turned to you oh yeah on that train because everybody was it was like a uniform they all (laughs) had the same overcoat raincoat overcoat kind of thing or a, a herringbone top coat yeah, with, with that with that hat, and and or later on a suit, and and they were all dressed the same way, and all did the very same thing. It was it was a, a bizarre time. It was because it was just like whatever that fad was at the time. Everybody latched onto it, and that became the uniform of the time. And it's like I my fondest memories. I remember my dad coming home from work. He had a getting uh, out of the uniform. Yes, he had. He would pull up in his car. He had a uh, Chevy Citation. He had a brown Chevy Chevy Citation, a little one with the like the two big doors on the side. It was a two door, and I remember he would get out, he would come inside, and he would come in and grab his. He had an old Villanova sweatshirt. He would put a Villanova sweatshirt on and gray sweatpants, and he would go, "Let's go outside and play." And it was like an instantaneous, like, "Let's go do this. Stop being. This is no more work." Let's go be family. Like, let's go do this together. And it's those are the fondest things. Those are the things you remember. Like, I'm sure he filed a thousand reports while he was alive, and not a single one is still in existence today, and no one cares about it. You know what I mean? Like, those are the things that, and yet I'm, you know, I'm here on a podcast telling a story about that, going like, this is the, this is the shit that matters. These are the things that you're gonna, you know, uh, I, one of the things my mom used to do, my mom worked at a prison. 
And I remember there was a like so when they got transferred out of like the state prison, if they were really like so if they had a terminal illness and they were no longer um, deemed a danger, they would get transferred to these small minimum security prisons where my mom worked. And I remember my mom saying like, you know, you talk to some of these guys because they're the sweetest people in the world. They had like they know they're gonna die and they just want to kind of they want someone to talk to. And uh, one of the things that she said was one of the guys said, you know, he never regretted. All the stuff that he he regretted the things that he thought mattered. He would spend his time trying to impress his friends or trying to get this girl or trying to do this shit. He goes, I, I, I don't regret a lot of things, but I regret where I put my effort and what I spent my time doing. Because if I knew it was going to end at some point in time, because we all kind of think like, oh, this is never going to end. It's like, shit, look, you're, you're, none of us are getting out alive. This is, this isn't, that's, this is not, this is finite time. So, um, it, she remember, like, she would go over and she'd be like, you know, this guy was saying to me, like, you know, the, the things I cared about. That's what I regret. I spent my time caring about stuff that didn't matter. And at the time, it was everything. You thought it was like, no, this is the whole thing. I have to care about this. I have to focus on this. And in the long run, it didn't matter at all. To be able to live long enough to learn from these experiences and change is such a gift. Like in my early to mid-20s, my only concern was going to dive bars and drinking mm. shitty drinks and spending money on illegal things like that. Yes. That was all that mattered. That was my only concern. That was my only end game. And I'm like, man, I could have done this and I could have done that. But I lived, which is awesome. And yes. now Very I get fortunate. now and I lived, I learned, I'm learning and I get to do stuff like this now. Now I'm doing it all now. And that's that's yes. that's great because not everybody and, gets that opportunity. And Go ahead. doing acting or or playing music or anything else that you take seriously requires effort and nuts and bolts oh, yeah. and is an honor to do. And the, the other things are complete and utter waste of time that you can't see. Uh, you know, there's no result within, within reason. There's, there's no positive thing from it. You don't come out any better for it anywhere. No. And you might not come out of it at all is the problem. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, and when you're younger, like when John was that age, it just seemed like you could do any of this stuff as many times as you want it. There's nobody going to be the wiser or give a shit. There's no bill to be paid for it. No check to cash. You're going to be fine. Right. Well, humans are not going to be fine no matter what they do. Sensitive items we are. Yeah, and, and you know what? De we're delicate. <laughs> it's fine until it's not. I, I sustained an insane lifestyle for a long time, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't fine anymore. That's so right. it's just fine and until it's, it's not. The cool part about this, though, is that, Lee, we cycle back to this theme when we, when we have these conversations, is that like we, we make sure that people understand that there are – if you feel like you're one of those people right now that you are by yourself and this is your sole focus and that there is – hope there's there's something out there whether you found it or not you may already be kind of already exposed to it a little bit but there's stuff out there that legitimately will make you and change your perspective on the way you live your life and it's it, it may be coming tomorrow it may be coming in five years from now but if you put in the work and really spend the time thinking about okay where it what's the trajectory of my life where is this going 
it, it really does help shape even simple decisions. I, like, I, you know, getting up in the morning, I make sure I have routines because then there's the big thing that I recognize with myself is I like accomplishment. When I have things that I've got, I've set, a, a set aside a certain number of tasks and they're done and I can look back on that, there's a feeling of, oh, that's done. That's good. Whether they're, and it's, I, and, and I'm talking like, Lee, it's, it's mundane things. I, I made coffee. I prepared my daughter's breakfast. I, em- I emptied the dishwasher. I started up my computer. Like, just to have that, to sit down in front of everything and go, okay, now I'm prepared for the day. When you're in that mode of just go, 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 or th- that singular focus of I-, I can't wait till this thing is over to like get to the next thing. Just recognize that sometimes you don't make it to the next thing. Like that's the that's the key that we want to get across to people is that you have to make sure that you appreciate what you have when you have it because God knows that when you're messing around with dangerous stuff and not or just not doing not being right, not being the right guy that you're supposed to be, or or taking those kind of chances, you never can tell when your number is going to be up. Right, and you you don't want that to happen, and you can avoid that by having a, a little better outlook. You, you, don't, you don't have to avoid everything in life. You know, you could have uh, you know, alcohol or something that's very dangerous because you might wind up drinking all the time. Yeah. Other things are the same way. But you, you, don't, you don't have to do it that way or you could just, uh, you know, have a sip here and there or have a beer with your friends maybe if you think you can get away with it or don't. Or, you know, learn what it is for you. It's going to be, you know, if you try one thing that's fun but dangerous and you're not going to be able to give it up, then that's no good for you. <laughs> yeah, I always you know? respected people who said like, yeah, I tried this thing and I knew it was really bad, so I never did it again. Like yeah, me, I'm sure. like, I tried this thing that I hated, but let me try it for five more years yeah, and then may- sure. maybe I'll like it. Yeah, let me just, let me just double check on it. Hold up. <laughs> Today might be the day. <laughs> and uh, Lee, I, I just want to really say thanks for taking the time to get on here and talk to us and to be on our show. You know, I really enjoyed the stories Tommy has shared with me about talking to you and about his father. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's been an absolute pleasure. So yeah. uh yeah. Really, thank, thank you, you very much for saying that. Yeah. It's been yeah. it's been an absolute joy for me to be able to to do something. Hopefully, that will bring some God knows what uh, relief, yeah. some some calm, just just loving feeling, being what's remembered, not all the horrendous pain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I was able in any way to, to put any of that in place, I, from, the, from the very outset of thinking about this, it was my purpose. Yeah. That's great. Wow. Yeah, and that's what we want this show to be is a hangout for friends. I know at least a couple people like it. And I know at least <laughs> a few people have told me that it's helped them through some tough times. So mission accomplished. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. And Lee, I wanted to say thank you because you have been uh, over the you know the past. I I can't even put a number on it. This but probably eight to ten years, you've been a a consistent source of someone I can go to for advice, for stories, just to 
honestly, we ended up talking a few months ago. We talked about uh, Catholic school, uh, Catholic education, uh, the Latin. It was just it, it was a three hour conversation. And I remember I hung up the phone and I went up to bed and Kelly was like, who are you talking to? And I was like, oh, you wouldn't know. <laughs> and, she, and she was like, no, 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 seriously, who are you talking to? And I was like, do you ever you ever see that movie Clue? And she's like, yeah, I know that. And I was like, remember Mr. Body? And she's like. Yeah. And I'm like, that dude. And she's like, oh, you mean Lee? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, why didn't you just say you were talking to Lee? Why do you do that? And I'm like, because it's, it's the, the suspense. It's fun. Like, it's kind of. <laughs> you know what was funny? <laughs> there was. There was something that I, I forget where it was now. Somebody had posted it on Instagram and they were so excited. Was it, They were talking – somebody had posted something up about uh, – Keith and I uh, – Keith is a huge, huge fan of this band from Philadelphia called Ink and Dagger. And unfortunately, their, their lead singer had passed away, but he got to see Fear. And somebody was like, he got to go see Fear. And he, I remember how excited he was because he came back and he was like, dude, leaving spit at me. <laughs> he was like <laughs> – and he was like, he was so excited because that was like, that was the highlight of his night. He was like, I idolized this dude. And he was like super aggressive. It was exactly what I thought it was going to be. I was like, that's great. What a great story. Yeah. Just theatrics and stage show and just emotion and just raw energy. Just amazing stuff. But Lee, th- Lee, thank you again so much for coming on. We we really love you coming on. And and again, we'll, let's do this again sometime. <laughs> so I, I look forward to it just since I knew we were going to do it. Yeah. Uh, be, be, because of, of, of wanting wanting to, to help out and, and to maybe... I don't know. Just you've provided some closure for me for sure. A hundred percent. If that's yeah, that's exactly. I mean, if that's what you set out to do, you've done it a thousand times over at this point. Um, every time you come and and the thing is, is that um, there's been times where I've been on the phone with you and I like I've said it to you before. Like I I was like you know you got to give me a minute because I'm getting choked up. I'm getting upset and it's like you know it it's uh it's nice because. The way our conversations go will spark something and you'll go, oh, my God, I remember this other story. And then you start going and I'm like, oh, this is so great. I'm so glad we had this conversation because, you know, it it, it got to a point where we're talking and we're like, oh, do you remember this? And then you remember this whole other series of things. And it's like, oh, my God, like this is I've, ne- I've literally never heard anybody talk about these. We will need to speak more often. but. <laughs> By any stretch, absolutely, <laughs> from 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 this point forward, yeah. and from from that point forward as well as we <laughs> have, but but to continue, and yeah. uh, I'll, I'll thoroughly appreciate that as I do you, and uh, God bless your family. Give, give all of them my love when you're speaking to them. I will. Thank you so much, Lee. Right. Thanks. Lee. My pleasure, indeed. Let's talk again soon. Let's absolutely. let's be let's God, be in touch. You too, Keith. Let's be in touch yeah. and let's let's stay in touch, man. There you have it, folks. Lee Ving. 
the man himself. Wow, that was something, wasn't it? That was wild, dude. And it was uh, it was really cool because it was just he's just such an interesting dude. And from the persona you get on stage of him, just wild and and careless and reckless, and to how carefully he puts together sentences and how thoughtful he is. And the other thing that comes across is how sentimental he is. He really is just a, a genuinely nice person. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that Saturday Night Live performance where everyone is going insane and, you know, that ended up getting them banned. I went and watched that again. And you wouldn't imagine that it's the same person that we were talking to in this episode. No, not at all. Like, not in a million years. You would never think that's the same person. It's like, it's like so wildly, like, it's such a contrast of, like, because that is just so aggressive and so, like, you know, it was pretty, that's a violent performance. Like, especially for that point in time. What year yes. was that? Was that 81? 81. Jesus. That's, dude, it's nuts. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, that was, at this point, you know, talking about a long time ago like 81 is 39 years ago like <laughs> that's a fucking lifetime like that's a you know that's a you know i haven't even we weren't that born long. yet yeah, yeah we, we weren't, weren't born even born yet. that like and he was you know in his 30s kicking ass but that's yeah that's amazing and um yeah one thing i wanted to ask i wanted to ask him if you reminded him of older Tommy at all. Because, like, that whole situation is mind-blowing. If someone randomly called me one day and said, like, hey, I'm the child of your friend who is now deceased. And I, I, had, and I had to tell him. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even know how to process that. And if the person I was speaking to reminded me of exactly of my now deceased friends, it, it would just be completely mind-blowing. Yeah, it's like that kind of uncanny, like, wow, this is like the same person. I would imagine we don't have a lot of the same, but I do know this. Um, my mom always says I laugh like my dad. Mm. Uh, so I, I have the same like chuckle that my dad has, but yeah. um, like my, like what, what v, like Lee said it a lot though. Like my dad was like a intellectual person. He read, like he didn't come home and watch TV. Like he read so that's, a lot. Like that's where you must have gotten that from. Cause I, <laughs> I can just see from talking to you, you really value education, one. You're a teacher, too, and you seem like you've read a lot of books and you know a lot of things. I I appreciate that. I don't know. I don't. I'm not an intellectual, though. I'm not someone that can really like. I, there's like really heavyweight people that are like they really know their shit inside and out. Yeah. My my knowledge is like a. There's that, what's that saying? Uh, a mile wide and an inch deep. Like, I know a little bit about a lot <laughs> of shit. I just don't know a lot of anything in depth. Like, I don't know yeah. details about a lot of stuff. Like, remember when we were talking to Pat McCormick and, like, he was having that surgery? And then I asked you, I was like, is that bad? And you're like, why are you asking me? And I was like, you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> whatever we're talking, whatever we're talking about, I can just assume that you're going to know something about it. I so this is the other thing is like my mom always worked. Um, even when she was at the prison, like her job before she worked at the prison, she worked um, at Holy Redeemer Hospital. 
So yes. I've always been around like medical stuff. I, my mom always spoke about medicine very like she would, whenever I would see something on a commercial, especially like when pharmaceutical commercials started happening, like I would ask a lot of questions. Um, and my mom not, wouldn't necessarily know the answer off the top of my head, but the guy that lived across the street from me, um, was a adjunct, uh, chemistry professor. And mm -hmm. she would always go, just go ask Mr. Hutta. And he would do this guy was like, he would know everything. So he was one of those people that taught me a lot about not only like just medicine and, and chemistry, but he would also teach me a lot about if you don't know something, this is how you go find out about it, like where to look and how to find information, which was probably the best skill anybody's ever taught me. Right. And it, it, you, it's amazing how often you have to remind people that like now that Google exists and YouTube, you, you can literally Google anything. I've Googled and figured out how to run entire softwares or ghost hard drives or any number of technological things. There's tutorials out there for everything. I actually had a, uh, a similar experience at work where we're using new software and I have now somehow become the, the go-to person, the guru of this new software. And they're like, how did you learn it? I'm like, do you know that at the bottom, like when you scroll down on the site, there's a question mark and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, there's like 10 different video tutorials about how to manage the data, how to find the questions, how to assign the standards. Like all of it's on the site. And I'm telling you, Keith, they're not in depth. Like some of the videos are like seven minutes long. It's like, this isn't a huge investment of time. It's just that people just don't, they want somebody else to do it for them. <laughs> yes. Like I do that. If I don't want to learn something, I'll ask, how do you do it? But if I want to learn it, I'll go and figure out how to do it and figure it out myself. Yeah, that's the, you know, I think that's one of the things that's cool now about like, if you have an interest in something, there's no excuse for not learning about it now. You can't just right. say, well, I, I don't have access to that. Like, you know, even, even 30 years ago, well, you got a fucking library card? Cool. Well, you, you want to learn about something? Go. Like, it, it, you can do the work. It's just, now it's l legitimately, it's at your fingertips. That chemistry teacher you knew, yeah. Did he ever teach you how to make meth? No, no. He was actually, he was one of those dudes that was like, um, <laughs> he was like, my mom always used to say, you can look at Mr. Hutta and you either can't figure out whether he sweeps the floors or he's a, like the head of like mathematics. Like he looked like a crazy person, like Einstein haircut, hair all over the place, wild, unkempt. He wore the same like four fisherman sweaters that had holes in them. He wore slacks that were too short. Um, he wore the same pair of like lace up gray New Balances for like ten years at a time. He and he always smoked a pipe. He like smoked like a like one of those Sherlock Holmes pipes. <laughs> and I would always see him walking in the neighborhood. He would just even if it was like really really cold outside. He would just walk. But he was one of those people that like he was just so smart. Uh, but he didn't interact socially well with people. I I know people would call that a diagnosis at this point. Like they'd be like, oh, he probably has X, Y, and Z. Yeah. At that point in time, it was just like, he's really smart and doesn't know how to talk to people. However, he really, uh, he, he took a liking to me and my, and my sisters. And really when my father passed away, especially um, whenever we needed help with anything, any, I mean, anything like our dryer broke one time and Mr. Hutta came over and fixed it. Like 
he was just a he was like one of these people he's just a fucking genius like he just knew how to he knew under he understood how things worked and and knew how to manipulate so it was just fucking amazing to be around him and there was times where i would just watch him do stuff and be like in complete awe. like he had a what's that thing called uh that uh, ham, remember ham radio it was like the high yes. altitude modulation thing so he would he had a like a running list on like super clear nights, like when it's really, really cold outside. Um, and there's like, you know, no cloud cover and the atmosphere is completely like un- unabated. Like he would be able to contact people. He had lists of like channels that he had gotten into uh, in like, it, like Turkey um, places in Russia, like where he was able to make con- direct contact with someone like literally halfway around the world. I was like, that's fucking awesome. How does that work? And then he would have a, he would have a Tommy explanation for it oh, <laughs> that, man. that he lost me. So on it was that. long. <laughs> oh yeah, dude, it was long and complicated. And I was like, Oh, I, you lost me. Sorry. So let's check in with our, our dear listeners and friends. We're here on another Monday night recording another classic episode of the Northeast scene. And Tommy, you're a bachelor this week, right? The next couple nights. Yes. So uh, the girls and the, the little one and my wife all went up to go visit the in-laws up in the Poconos. Because the girl, now, do during... you look? Do you look forward to those type of nights? I have to say, I if I have a weekend to myself or a night to myself or something like that, I love it. I I really look forward to it. So y- yes and no. I really really like the freedom of like um, I ate what I wanted for dinner. It wasn't like I have to make dinner that is you know palatable to six-year-olds and you would know, you have uh well i i got popeyes yes so I had, yes that that's my like every two weeks i'll get that and what'd you get what do you get what's your uh, meal so i always get this is what i've always heard so the chicken tenders arrive frozen but the ch- actual chicken on the bone mm-hmm. is never is always fresh never frozen so i always get chicken on the bone i usually get if like this week because I knew like I was gonna have it for a couple nights. I got an eight piece. I got the eight Ooh. piece. Got the eight piece family meal. So I got uh, the side. I got was uh, macaroni and cheese, mm-hmm. and it comes with what six biscuits, I think. Oh man, and you're living the life. So yeah, I ate fried chicken over the sink <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't have to wash any plates. <laughs> and a big, that now, now that's efficient. And a big glass of Turkey Hill iced tea. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, now, was, I, I get the breast and two wings. I like the wings because they're always crispy. Oh Sometimes the breast or the thigh is like too veiny. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you the wings in. are always... Yeah, I hate that. The wings are always crispy. And I, I sometimes I double up and get mashed potatoes and french fries. Oh, that's, and, I forgot uh, about that. I got a side order of the Cajun fries. Yeah. Yes, you have yeah. to. It's good. And, I, and I, I, I've had the spicy chicken sandwich. It's, I don't eat it often because I just feel bad after I do. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's heavy. It's like greasy. That's so, a greasy thing. Yeah. I, do you, uh, here's the only other thing. When you get chicken there, do you get regular or spicy? Oh, spicy. Yeah, I always, so I always get spicy and Kelly always hates it. She's always like, no, I can't eat any of that. I'm like, it's not that spicy. It's not like fucking like t- like Tabasco spicy. It just has like a little bit of like it Zest. makes your mouth yeah, it makes your mouth a little numb for a split second and it tastes so much better than the other stuff. Like yeah, I don't fuck with regular. It's spicy all the way. 
Yeah, I don't. I just never get that. I they do have a a thing, and I always ask for it if they have it. Um, it's called it's like a it's one of the dipping sauces. You're only supposed to get it when you get the tenders. But I just mm-hmm. asked. I asked politely, and the lady gave it to me. Um, it's called. Um, I think it's called sweet and hot and it's, mm-hmm. it's like super, it's like, um, not like a ranch, like thick. It's like almost like liquid. Um, but it is so unbelievably good when you dip the Cajun fries in it. Like it's the right you know amount what? of like Popeye's has excellent hot sauce too. Oh yeah. Well, this is, so this is the one thing I, I forgot about this though, is like, we don't ever, re- so Popeye's is like not far from us. It's, it's in Ben Salem. So from my house, it's like a 10 minute drive, right? Not bad at all. Yeah. But Kelly's always like, well, I don't want to get Popeye's. And I was like, why? Then I got the <laughs> bill. I got the bill when I, when I was leaving and I was like, this is for one person. And I was like, it was like $31. I was like, ah, like for 50 bucks, we can order like a enough family like we can order for fifty dollars at the chinese food place it's Mm -hmm. enough for a family and it lasts us two days like yeah and i get it through uber eats so that's like twenty dollars for a meal just for me oh because you yeah i've never done that you have to pay a lot of extra like it's like there's a lot of fees that go along with it right right but i don't like to leave the house so i'll I'll, (laughs) I'll eat that what's your feeling on churches church's chicken not good i don't like it i've only had it twice that's what i eat that's what i used to eat when i had no money when i worked at uh when i worked in center city philly at liberty one um i had no money i was always broke and i would always eat a church's chicken because you could get a meal for like five bucks that's i used to get it uh, that's the only time i've ever gotten it was in i think it was in market east I was yes. Yeah, I was in. I was coming. This was so long ago, but I was at Temple and I was taking the train home. And I Temple has that Center City campus, so I was getting off at Market East. And I was like, I smelled it when I was walking by. I was like, oh, it's really good. And then I went to school, and on my way home, I'm like, I'm gonna get that, and I'm gonna eat it on the train on my ride home. And I remember being like, just disappointed because every, you know people could kind of hyped it up, and it's I low just, quality. It's very low quality, and it's very greasy. Very greasy. Yeah. Oh yeah, I made the mistake. I used to always eat at the one in Suburban Station. That w- oh, that okay. fed me from like 2008 till 2000. <laughs> I don't know, 12. And <laughs> and one time I ate it twice in one day. Oh, can you can you imagine that? No, I I have a hard time. We eat fast food once a week, and I yeah. get really sick of like. So like if especially if we order pizza or something like that, I love pizza on Friday night. On yes. Saturday, on Saturday when I look at it, I'm like disgusted by it. I'm like, ugh, I don't want. I don't know how I used to eat fast food every day when I was a teenager. McDonald's had that two Big Macs for two twenty two thing. Oh shit! I, I, I would eat that. I would eat that every day. Oh, every day. I yeah. I I I always was so. My mom's a good cook, so I was always used to eating at home. Yeah, and it was like whenever we ordered out, it was only like two places. Like, get pizza or Chinese. So like, we never, I never had fast food growing up, like ever. So you're home, you're by yourself, you're eating Popeye's chicken over the sink, and have you played any video games? Now that's the important question. I have not. I I've been boring stuff. 
we've we're the floor's getting done upstairs so uh i i did a lot of like last night when they like i i did all the moving of furniture yeah so, like the room was cleaned out when they came in um so i no i haven't had any like tonight i'll have some like real free time to like kind of like sit down and play i might get in a couple games but i think the biggest thing is now is i really 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 want to play games that i can play for an extended period of time so i want to sit down and play zelda or i want to play metroid and that's like a two to three hour endeavor like that's not a oh sit down and play for a little bit like yeah i want to go back and play some of these games because i've been watching those arcus speed runs and i really want to play the classics again (laughs) and i got there's a there's a game called blaster master zero it's it's a blaster master remake Okay. For, I got it through the PlayStation 4 store and I'm playing it and it's it's like the original game and they change some things but they add a lot of story so wow. I have to like mash through these story parts and so and I'm like I just want to play the original game. Yeah. So I might I might just break out the bootleg classic NES I have and, and go back and play it. I don't know. I'll I'll probably finish both cuz you know, once I started, I have to finish it. But I forget Master Blaster. What is that? The one where you're like in the little tank? Blaster Master. Blaster Master. What? What game? Yes. How? Like describe gameplay. What is it? You're in the little tank, and okay. you jump out of the tank to go into the levels to fight the bosses. Okay. All right. I. It's I a do. classic. Yeah. Okay. All right. So my week work is insanely busy. I I have so much going on that I I created an hour by hour excel sheet to manage my day and it's color-coded for work and podcast and other stuff that i do i have a gaming section too so (laughs) so i you know what's the thing that romy calls you (laughs) oh quadriculado (laughs) how fucking accurate is that right now (laughs) you literally have a you literally have a graph for your how your day should go holy shit dude every hour from when i wake up to when i go to sleep oh my god do you adhere to it do you like actually stick with it yes so far i have jesus yeah i waste i waste too much time at least i in my mind and i i have this exam this project management exam that i have to study for and get done it's supposed to get done this year and uh, you know so i gotta really manage my time to make sure i'm studying consistently and that's why i put this thing together and yes she you know she she wants me to take this exam and pass it i do too so she's she wants bromi i'm referring to wants me to like manage my time better but she still laughed when I sent her the spreadsheet, even though I told her I was going to do it. She <laughs> she laughed at the color coding. She's like, "You even have video games in there?" And I was like, "Of course." Yeah. Well, you got to plan for the <laughs> plan for the 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 things that are absolute necessities. You know, like if the, if it's going to happen, you might as well plan for it. Might as yes. well a lot time. You know, you're going to do it. Yes. So yeah, I mean everything's fine. I oh, it's cooler outside now. Fall weather has snuck in. I oh man, I love it. This time of year is awesome. It's also kind of scary because uh, changes in weather make me want to like get high, as many other things do. Uh. <laughs> and I, and I can't do that anymore. But I I kind of stopped getting high the first time in fall, and okay. then I started getting high again in winter and then i stopped getting high for the last time in spring so it's like pretty much every season is going to make me want to get high in some sense yeah there's a trigger in there everywhere so 
Yes, but fall really does it because I love fall. I love the sweaters and fall fashion. I love the way the air feels. I just it's it's my time. It's the time, and especially in New York City, it's awesome. So I'm like reminiscing on horrible times. I'm like, oh, remember when I used to sit in a basement and get blasted out of my mind and watch Cheers on Netflix like <laughs> by myself? That was real fun. And then I'm like, wait a minute, wait, that wasn't fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I don't I, know. So I'm dealing with that, but it, you know, it's it's. I'm not going to do it. I can't. No, I don't want to die. You can't. You just yeah. What was it? Do you ever see that movie? Um, what was the one? Um, I keep forgetting the name of it. It, it was one of the, it was one of the Jackass movies, and uh, Steve-O was sober for it. So I don't think it was the first one. Maybe it was the second one or the third one. But Steve-O, Three, I think was Steve-O did this stunt where he fell. And he, like they were supposed to, like he was doing like a tightrope walk over fire. But when he fell, he fell on one of these metal panels, and he yeah. had like third degree burns on his arm. And uh, he's going to the hospital. And the guy's like, "Well, let's just give him pain meds." And Knoxville's like, "Oh no, no, no! He had that card revoked. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> he's not allowed to do that anymore." <laughs> it's like, "Oh no! Can you imagine actually having to go through like a serious thing?" Like, as an adult, like, I could think about, like, maybe if you had, like, some, like, dental work or something done, and then, like, they're like, oh, here's a bunch of Vicodin. You have to be like, no thanks. <laughs> I don't know what I would do. If Well, if it was Vicodin, I definitely wouldn't take it, because that's trash. But I don't know what I would do in that situation. I don't know if I would take the pain meds and use them responsibly and have someone help me manage it, which people do. Okay. Or, or and I or I don't know if I would just say no. I can't do that. I don't know what I would do until the situation arose. See, I well, I think with me, I think the fun thing is is like when I I get like I had that uh my I had surgery in what was it July, and they gave me Percocet, and I remember being like, I don't want these. <laughs> she was like, Well, you what have you to do with them. They're sitting upstairs in my uh, medicine cabinet. Like, they're... what are you doing later? <laughs> you trying to meet? <laughs> trying to meet up? Um, but I, I think I, I think I texted it to you because I remember they. So they, they gave me such a weird like script. Like they before the surgery, they gave me um, two Valium to take, and then a script for Percocet. And the script for Percocet was like the I don't know what the dosages are because it's like I guess two and a half milligrams and then like five milligrams. So yeah. they gave me the ones that are the five milligram ones. So I'm like looking at them. I'm like, should I take one of these? And I wasn't in any real pain. I mean, it was uncomfortable, but I wasn't like in pain. So I was like, I'm just not taking these. And then one night that I actually did have pain, I was like, I rolled over and I was like, oh, that really hurt. I got up in the middle of the night. And because I was like, you know, half asleep, I just took ibuprofen that was already like right out in the front of the medicine cabinet. So I just took that and I woke up the next morning and I was like, I'm still kind of sore. I was like, oh, that's right. I hurt myself last night. And then I was like, I have Percocet. Fuck. <laughs> I should have taken like real medicine that I should have used. Like that was dumb. Like that's the point. That was the whole point of getting it. And I fucking didn't take it. I was like, that was fucking so stupid. But if you're someone who has not abused pain medication and you take it, it's, it's very uncomfortable. I, it's, I don't like, like at that point I did not like it. It just made me very itchy and nauseous yeah. and sick, and I hated it. Uh, yeah, I do get itchy from it. I remember when um, when I had my spleen out, they had given me um, – I don't remember exactly what it was. But it was very, very strong. 
And I remember my mom, when I came home, my mom was like, I'm going to take this. And I was like, okay. And she's like, I'll give them to you when I think you need them. And I was like, all right. But keep in mind, like my surgery was like, literally it had cut my entire abdominal cavity open. So it was like, it's like a 13 or 14 inch incision. So every time I would cough, every time I would sit up, it was really, really bad pain. So I remember my mom gave me, um, whatever it was, I want to, it wasn't like Percocet or anything like that. Did they, can they send you home with morphine? Can they send you home with that? MS cotton is morphine sulfate. Yeah. Yeah. They might've given me something, but I, I remember I took it and it was so, uh, the pain relief was so good that I ended up doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. Like I was moving around so much more freely that I was actually really kind of causing more damage than it was worth. Like yeah. I was like, I, I, I took it and I remember the one thing that I did and my mom was like, you shouldn't be doing that was like, I had opened a cabinet and I was reaching to the top shelf to get out um, like a big bowl or something like that. And she was like, you shouldn't be reaching like that. And I was like, well, it doesn't hurt. And she's like, it doesn't hurt because you just took medicines, shithead. Like, what are you doing? Like, and that's when I was like, all right, I got to be really more careful about how much I take. So whenever I took it from that point on, my mom would, I think, only give me half a one. Um, because yeah. it's enough to dull the pain, but not enough to know that like you shouldn't be kind of pushing limits in terms of what you should be doing. Because like, I felt nothing. I was like, I don't even feel anything. I feel great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a <laughs> giant bowl of cereal. That's good stuff right there. Yeah. That's, 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 what, that's the stuff you want. Or don't oh. want, depending on your situation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, oh, so get this. Did, that post I made on Instagram the other day with the, the Ink and Dagger record, did you see that? Yes. So when I I moved from the Gall Street house into Doug's house in like 2007, I think. Okay. A, a, end of summer 2007. And at that time, I had no money ever. And I sold a couple records on eBay and a turntable. And I had a health savings account through my job at the time. Yeah. And I didn't know, like a health save. I don't know what a health savings account is exactly. All I know is they gave me a card and I could withdraw money out of an account like cash. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, bingo. So I ended up like withdrawing 800 or $900 out of this health savings account. And I was just partying and I used the money to like, pay the security deposit to move into the house. And, you know, I left the company, the company went under and I never got a bill. So I fucked the system. So that's there you good. Go. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I digress. Um, I sold this, that ink and dagger record that I posted and another one and a turntable. And I, 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 I didn't set a reserve bid for the records. Oh. So these records were worth a, you know, I don't know, 30, $60. So they, I ended up sending, I ended up selling them for like five or ten bucks. Like oh, it was, no. it it was really sad because Ink and Dagger is one of my favorite bands. And then once you know, I had to pay for shipping. So once all was said and done, I pretty much made no money. So I basically gave them away. <sighs> that's that's that sucks so bad. I've done that before. I sell I sell sneakers on eBay a lot. Like I I wait. Let me finish the story. Yeah. No. So, so oh wait. So yeah. So the post. Yeah. So. I bought the Ink and Dagger 7-inch on Discogs and made the post and said, 
Hey, if if anyone has the other record I sold, the Ink and Dagger, their last LP on Yellow, sell it to me. So a friend of mine actually contacted me and said, you know, he, he digs the podcast and he digs what we're doing and he has the record. So if he, if I want to buy it, he'll sell it to me. Do you know, do you know Larry, uh, Larry Ragone? Oh, dude, that's, uh, yeah, dude, he used to dance at show. He was like a, a big, like, hardcore dancer dude at shows. Uh, he's a huge record collector, right? Yes, he was nice. in a band back in the day called... Uh, X-Made, was right? Called? Was he X-Made? No, that's a newer one. Oh, okay. He was in a band called Nine Will Die. I never saw them, because they just weren't in my circle. They yeah. weren't, like, they weren't in my orbit back then. Okay. And Psychic Teens, who I've seen a bunch of times, they're good at yeah. a Philly. Yeah. So he sold me the record. I have it. And that's right. fucking awesome. So shout out to Larry. Thank you so much for selling me that. And oh my God, the record is just, what a way to go out. I don't know if you've ever heard that record, but it's just, it's unlike anything I've ever heard. And it's incredible. You have a record player? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry's probably going to be hear this and be like, "Oh fuck, why did I do no?" But I I plan to get a setup at some point, you know. So that's I'm buying. Okay. I buy the really must have records in anticipation of that. <laughs> I saw one at Target a while ago, and I was like, "Oh, I should just buy a record player." And then my wife was like, "You literally just threw one out like <laughs> six months ago." And I'm like. I don't know. I go in cycles with stuff like that where I I saw somebody and I sold a bunch of records uh, at that place in Doylestown. But yeah. I saw a couple people post stuff on Instagram and I'm like, I don't know what that is in me, but I just immediately was like, I want that. It was like, a, yeah, it was a cave in uh, the double LP for until your heart stops. But it was like on some really like the I don't remember if it was like splatter or like if it was like see through. I was like I need that, and then I was like, yeah, with it, with I, I'm not even a huge vinyl guy. It's just <laughs> with certain records I have to have it on vinyl. Like Cave In would be one of them. Botch, Ink and Dagger, Hum. You know, like the the real real oh, yeah. classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I th- didn't I give you a Cave In record? I was just yes, yes. I I what was it? Creative Eclipses. Creative Eclipses. Yeah. yeah. Because that was one of those ones that I was like, I don't know what to do with any of this stuff anymore. I threw my record player out. (laughs) Well, anyway, so I'm glad I have that record. I'm glad it's fall. I'm glad we're doing the show. And, you know, it's it's going good. People are saying nice things. So continue to listen to us. Continue to follow us on social media. We got the Twitter. We got Instagram, VNE Scene. Continue to write us. We're getting some good emails and we want to get some more. We'll read your stories, your experiences on the air. Email us, northeastscene at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. What else? That's it. Uh, oh, shout out to Mike Miggs, who contacted me the other day and was like, yo, I dig the podcast, and was asking, like, you know, ins and outs of, like, how we actually record it. And I was like, I don't know, call Keith. you should probably talk to keith keith does all that yeah well mike if you want to know hit me up and uh shout out to mike for doing you know what to you know who in the late 90s Uh, (laughs) i don't want to blow i don't want to blow it up here but you know where's that video where's the video of that can we post that (laughs) i i would i would have to clear that i I don't know if if mike shaw still has the video but 
we could find out. So we'll we'll talk about that. But, I'm uh, surprised you guys didn't break it from rewatching it. <laughs> Just rewinding it over and over again. There, we were at Mike Shaw's house one time and we watched it. And literally we were doing like slow-mo replays. And it's it was just great because you know, I well I don't want to I don't want to yeah, no, blow up Mike's spot so yeah, yeah we yeah but uh yeah sh- Mike shout out to Mike Mig we love you we love you yeah. Larry and uh, yeah continue to listen continue to write to us and that's it so everyone have a good night and until next time. Yeah!